0: in the room. There are four possible possible categories. There are some youngsters who are planning like crazy now for what's going to happen. Are any of you in that thing, sort of mid-career? Ah, a couple of them. Good. That's nice. Well done. Never too soon to start thinking. There's some of you who are about to transition into retirement. How many of you are? Okay, there's some of you. There's some of you who are happily living in the la-la land of retirement. Any of those? Good. And there's some kids who desperately want to find tips to kick their parents into the... Hi, (laughs) Matt. Okay. What we're going to do is try and cover all those areas. Because one of the truths about retirement is it's inevitable. And it's never too soon to start the dialogue about retirement and never too late to start that dialogue. Because one of the things that Sue will touch on is that we, part of a cohort of people who are only just developing the language to discuss what our parents didn't discuss. But Sue will say more about that. Quickly, who are you? You know, we come from Common Ground. We are on the pastoral team over there we just sort of Favurna people, next door sort of people. We both grew up in Finelands. We went to university, to college over there. We went to local schools. I did the national service thing in the Air Force. Um, we were both very keen Scripture Union people, and that ties in with my current attempt to be retired, where I'm chairman of Scripture Union South Africa, which is a long obedience in the same direction started when we were both very young went to SU camps. Um, after a very touching moment in mine, when I heard the Lord speak to me, it was at a young adult session, and I felt called to serve. Serve by washing up the cups after this young adult meeting. That call had nothing to do with the young woman who was also washing up the cups. But the first physical contact with Sue was under the soapy suds. And as our pinkies touched, the water evaporated. The cups dried. It was magical. <laughs> and then SU sort of clicked in. I was running SU camps, invited Sue to come along as a leader. She very, very subtly named her group of kids the love Bugs, And the rest is history. <laughs> but... um We've been married for 38 years, going on 39 years now. We have four daughters, three married. Um, one, our fourth daughter, she was an AIDS orphan that we adopted when she was meant to die. She forgot to. She turns 21 this year. And um, if any of you know of an albino rapper with rich parents who terminally ill, please let us know because we really want to marry her off as well. So Lerato is... Um, responsible for half the grey hairs, and being part of our learning curve in life and you'll sort of falter through some of the unexpected things that you can never plan for in life, but come your way anyway. Um, I started off teaching, we were both teachers, Um, then had the opportunity to do some post-grade stuff in America, we were on staff at a Baptist church there, I studied at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, came back to South Africa, went on to teaching. Hit a very early midlife crisis where I couldn't be sort of headmaster of a school and love lots of other people's kids when somehow along the way I'd got a wife and kids to look after. So I made a sort of strategic move, went to Old Mutual, had 20 years there, ended up as an HR executive in one of the business units, and then hit the luckiest thing that could ever happen to a 55-year-old White South African. The socio political environment had changed, and Old Mutual had to transform senior management. In 17, of just were At mandatory retirement age, we were earliest in days 55, into a trust where we were told to just go and do good. So, for five years, the trust funded us doing good. We just had fun. We discovered ourselves, we uncorporatized, we discovered humanity discovered possibility, discovered the fun of being old and having a bit of experience. So, at a glorious time and since then that sort of, well, that has set me off on a trajectory of um, finding fun things to do. And Goodness, there are enough of them. Um, One of the cleverest things I've done in this trajectory was marry a clever wife. So, Sue I have been trained as a teacher. We then a stay-at-home mom and the kids were big. We had an interesting year, the year my mom died. And this is all about retirement. And death is going to be one of the inevitable things that we're going to factor in. And I'll complete this loop later on. But the year my mom died was the year our then-youngest daughter, Hannah, was going to start school the following year. And Sue and I sat on the beach and we were blessed by my mother's frugality and the state wound up and suddenly we were at that thing sitting on the beach with Hannah about to go to grade one and we had infinite possibilities because in order to put butter on bread, Sue didn't have to work. We had a bit of bandwidth because of my mom's love for us. And Sue at 38, I think it was, then hit varsity um, One of her regrets in life was that she was a teacher, training college, not varsity, so we fixed that. And um, about seven or eight years later, she ended up with um, a whole handful of degrees. She um, did a master's in theology and psychology, works in that place where bad things happen to good people. And then to prove that God does have a sense of humor, she lectured at Stellenbosch University in the Quirk School, that's where they make any here and my Engels sprekende, the Baptist frau, my dummies. quite fun. So, highly skilled. <laughs> and doing peculiar things. She's now in private practice. So, we transition and straddle that thing of me at 67, in that sort of retirement phase, to 60, on the cusp of what next? Loving what she's doing, but realizing that the best is yet to come. So that's our background. Sterling Baptist Church, Saturday morning, we're going to wrestle with some of the things facing you. It's not going to be a sermon. One sermon comes tomorrow. That's when those things happen. But it's a talk within a context of what I call big theology. And My big theology, and I'm just going to get this out of the way because it's quite central to what we're going to say. Has just three points. The first point is this one Genesis 1 1, where it says, In the beginning God. First words in the Bible. And that's a sort of mantra that we've lived under. So our discussion isn't going to be about in retirement, put God first. Because little me doesn't get to put big God first. He is first. In the beginning God. So our challenge is just to suck up that and live under that. We don't have to reposition God. He is. Second point of my basic theology is a verse you probably know, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So in this world that God created that we get to be part of, he sent Jesus for us. And all implications of a dynamic relationship with a redemptive God made possible through that. And then the third thing of this big theology is the last thing Jesus said, Matthew 28, verse 20, the Great Commission, the last phrase in that Great Commission was just simply this thing, "No, I am with you always. And it's this whole idea that each one of us, whether we acknowledge it, like it, or are aware of it, we held in the very palm of the hand of God. God who created everything, sent his son to redeem it, and he walks with us, holding us in the very palm of his hand into the future. So with that meta-narrative, we're going to get quite down and dirty, nitty-gritty about, um, as it says over there, retirement. And that wasn't a, a typo. I really like the idea of T-Y-R-E. It's almost like going into a phase of life where you can be retreaded and re purpose for something else retreads are very cool they're not as expensive as the big tires and they still get the job done they get you where you want to go so we to talk about retirement look at the realities look at the possibilities and look at the plan it's not going to be all about us you've got a booklet when you came in we've got some fairly basic but we think very very important exercises and one of the challenges for you facing retirement or living in retirement, is to use the, the handout, the little booklet, as a discussion guide, not just for the day, but with your significant other, with your spouse, with friends, get together and talk about some of these things. Because a lot of the research coming out says that retirement when I grew up was a, a sort of age milestone, after which you always wore a tie to church, and you wore grey flannels and not jeans. You played bowls, you drank gin, you had a heart attack, you died. That was like the trajectory for retirement. Didn't really have a picture of it. And I'm in a ridiculous situation now, where I have a 67-year-old body and about a 30-year-old mind. <laughs> you know, um, there, there, there's seemingly a disconnect that our parents didn't seem to have. They just mellowed into this decrepit sort of existence of um, their world getting smaller, and they did it quietly in the background. Now the world is full of very noisy, rambunctious, vital dynamic, retired um, people. I'm um, just coming here yesterday, grabbed the, the, uh, the Cape Times, a free newspaper, Pensions of free things, you can even read bad newspapers. And yesterday's Cape Times, front page. Korolo celebrated her 101st birthday at Haste Look Off yesterday. A sprightly old duck eating not one, but two birthday cakes, having a big birthday party. Um, also, just below it, graduate 62, never gave up. In the story of my buddy Eric Atmore, and he has this lovely line that I, I really like. Um, he failed, yeah. But basically he says he, he failed standard six, he failed the trick, and his leave he was advised to leave Wasty after his first year. And he's now a professor of social work at UCT. Yesterday got his PhD at sixty two. He has no right to be doing that. But you know what? No unfolding. So he did. And that's the beauty of what we want you to live into as we spend the next three hours journeying together. You need a bit of work to start your own thinking process and also to start some discussion starters with those significant other friends as you journey together into what should be and what could be and what can be a very, very exciting phase of life. But it doesn't just happen. So, over to Sue, i am setting up.
1: I'm going to do just a quick intro now as well. But I'm surprised, Auntie you didn't talk about our grandkids. Did he say anything about our grandkids? About? How? I don't know how he didn't do that. We've got twin granddaughters who are five, and they're quite delightful. And then we've got Noah. Now, we've had four daughters, and I was one of three sisters. and had two sisters. We've got two granddaughters. My second daughter had a son called Noah, and it's amazing. So we're loving Noah. Little boys are so different, and it's, it's so exciting. So we've got three little grandkids. I don't know why he usually says that first, and actually that's usually all he speaks about. Anyway, <laughs> so I turned 60 last year, which was quite a, like, a crisis for me because my grand died at 60, and I remember my grand really well. She had long, silver hair that she used to twirl up in a used to watch her do it. She wore these beautiful silk dresses coming down to below the knee. She always wore silk stockings with that seam down the back, remember that, and heels. She was beautiful, but she died at 60, and I turned 60. I'm like, I can't believe it. And then my mom turned 90 last month. And my mom, all the time we were growing up, said to us, never, ever put me in an old age home. And we put her in an old age home 10 years ago after my dad died. So traumatic so much guilt, and yet when I look at her today, she's happier than I've ever seen her before. But so much sort of non-languaging, not knowing, so much confusion, what can we do, what should we do. My mom didn't have a role model for a mom who grew older. So she didn't realise, you know, it never put me an old age home. You know, what? What do we do? Um, especially when you're living in a family that's full and busy and everyone's working, you know, it's a tricky thing, but a lot of, of that generation didn't see their own moms getting older, we are, some of us seeing our parents getting older, um, and, and I've noticed that the generations above me seem to not have the language in the same way that our generation, and of course the generations after us are completely oversharing, and they say way too much, and they know way too much, but I think really we, well, it feels like for me, and I'm, I'm being personal about this, doesn't really apply to everybody, it feels like we needed to have language and not just information. You can always look for information about stuff, like what it looks like. We need the language of people's experience. We need to know what it's like for you. How was it? You know, Was it difficult? Was it like this? Are you scared of that? What does it feel like? Um, and, and that's what we needed. And I remember when I was in my late 30s, I was watching a movie with my kids, and there was a menopausal woman on the movie, and she was weird. And my kids said, Mom. Are you going to go through menopause? And it's like, ooh, you know, it wasn't spoken about. You don't talk about these things, you know, they sort of happen slowly and then you slide And I said to him, look, I will, but I'm hoping that when I get there, I'm going to find out everything I know about it and I'm going to make sure I'm not going to go weird like that woman. <laughs> so I went on to woman replacement therapy when I went into menopause. And menopause has been the best time of my life. And, and no one told me that. And I was scared of it and I didn't know what it was going to be and um so languaging and just speaking about it and hearing people's experiences and i think i grew up in and maybe a lot of us grew up in the children must be seen and not heard so we didn't have a voice and we weren't supposed to speak the we weren't supposed to say the horrible stuff we could say the nice you know but not the horrible stuff and i think we need the language to be able to speak about everything and I wondered, you know, the other generations, if i maybe made them look private and secretive and, and didn't have a voice, but I feel that part of our journey today and part of actually my life journey is actually finding that voice, speaking out and actually hearing people's stories. Actually, that's what I do every day as well. Um, and for me, I'm very much in the saddle work-wise still. So having only started sort of a second career, I did my Master's at 45, so I'm, you know, the last 15 years have been amazing and busy, and I love my work. And what has happened to me in the last, I would say, eight months or or the last few years is I've hit a a health crisis, and so this has moved me into a completely different space. So the reason I can come and speak today, I think I would have said, no, I can't speak about this because I'm still working, and I keep working, and that's it. But my health crisis has pushed me into another space, and that's actually what happens in life, isn't it? So I have a chronic lung condition that has um, become really bad over the last since July last year. And the metaphor that I've used is that I would I was able to drive in top gear and for the last number of months I've only been able to go in second gear. And the last six months of last year I um I thought it tooth and that so I'm not gonna stop working. I cannot I love this and I'm not gonna do it. Yeah, I've got a retired, semi half retired, not really retired husband whose children, you know, very happy with whatever I choose, but I'm just enjoying what I'm doing. And only actually in the last three months, since December, when it really got bad, I actually spent ten days in hospital last in, in March now. So I've really just out of the recovery and the reason I'm here today is I'm full of lots of pills. So I can breathe. And um, so 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 my journey is kind of happening now. <laughs> And I, I nearly didn't come because of the health thing, and then I decided that there's so much reading and processes in that I'm doing, just about what does this look like? It feels premature for me. I'm not ready for this. And sometimes we get thrown into the next phase in a premature way. Sometimes we choose it. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's just different for everybody. So when I do talk later, I'll sp- share more about what my journey has looked like and and what it is to actually get to a different place when you didn't choose it. And I think that's just how life goes. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs say you have to first eat and you've got to have shelter and you've got to have this and anything. and actually got it wrong. The first need is breathing. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's kind of like quite pivotal to a person's life. And so in in the in the driving seat it feels like, it feels like somehow something has being taken away prematurely.
0: Okay, so that's intro. Now we're going to start messing with your brains and getting you to think. And the first thing I want you to do is a exercise. It's going to appear in the video screens up there. And it's a carefully chosen exercise. One of the things that go hand in hand with retirement are concerns about dementia. Lots have been written about dementia. Alzheimer's is a spectrum of conditions which basically are a manifestation of sort of cerebral decay. Your brain doesn't work the way it used to be. And there are many things that um, older people love to do to try and keep their mind sharp. So you find older people love um, process, Sudoku. They do things which they think, if I do these things, it will keep the neural pathways firing and I'm actually going to put off any inevitable physiological decay that does take place. And that's what we want to do today. We want to help you take your eye off the obvious and start looking at the big things that actually could undo your best efforts if you're not open back and looking for the dancing bear. And one of those sort of dancing bear things um, is the changing world in which we live. So we are not going to come up with a silver bullet or an answer for you today. Hopefully we're going to start you on the first step of a journey, or for some of you on the journey, a step in a different direction of the journey. Um, In 2000, my millennium madness. Can you guys remember that? Y2K computers were going to crash. The world was going to stop. Millennium madness. I don't know what you did in 2000. My millennium madness was I ran the Comrades. It was an uprun, 16th of June, 2000, 5 o'clock in the morning, starters his gun, Smith Street, Bourbon. And as the gun went off, with the first step, I actually had my Comrades medal in my neck. Because with that first step, what clicked into operation was a combination of 9 to 12 months of training, of every morning the alarm going off at five o'clock and fighting the battle of mind over a mattress, getting out of a bed where there's a hot wife and hitting the cold road and running. So when the start of gun went off and I took the first step, the next ten or eleven hours of pain was just academic. I was going to finish. It was everything I did before that day that enabled me to get to where I wanted to be. It wasn't an easy, painless journey. I've never had suicidal thoughts up to that point, but there's part of the Comrades called Lion Park, where you run past the Lion Park, and I seriously thought of climbing a four-meter fence and feeding myself to the lions at some stage. Anything would have been better than what I was doing. But i finished. Not because I pitched up in the day, but because of everything I'd done beforehand. And I want to... Challenge you as retirees, as people facing retirement, that that's the secret to the happy retirement. It's long yards in the same direction before the event that is actually going to determine the success of the event. So, hopefully, today will be the first step in a journey in which the questions are actually more important than the answers. You know, answers are are such fickle things. Last night we had supper with Peter Johnson. He told the story which illustrated this so well. He had an eye operation a couple of years ago which was bells and whistles, cutting-edge science that provided the perfect right answer for the condition he had. He now has another condition for which there's a very simple procedure that can help him. But the perfect right answer from a couple of years ago has meant that the current perfect answer can't come into practice. can't happen. It can't do. This is called transplant. So we can't get sucked in our journey by what we think we know. We've got to get very, very comfortable with discomfort and allow ourselves to ask questions. So one of the, the things I'd like to suggest, and you can take... Um, Picks of the books, that's the way people buy books nowadays. You take a picture, then you go to take a lot, and you buy it cheaper than elsewhere. Fascinating book by Hans Rosling. He's a medical doctor in one of the Nordic countries, and it's a book called Factfulness. In such a get-out-of-jail, for my mind, 10 Reasons We Are Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. Man Alive, South Africa, 2019, we need to read books like this that actually help us to reframe our current situation where often we don't see the word for the trees. And then for those of you who want a bit of mental gymnastics, one of my favorite authors, this is not a John Ortberg or a C.S. type book, this is a crazy Jewish agnostic academic, professor of history at the University of Jerusalem, a guy called Yuval Noah Harari, who's written this is his third book, 21 Lessons of the 21st Century. That's where we at. It's brilliant. Not a quiet time book, but a stretch of mind book. He's also written Sapiens, a brief history of humankind, and another book called Homo Deus, When Man Becomes God. As he looks as a historian at our history, not through the door as most historians look at stories but through a window. He has a different perspective on things. And I found both books particularly helpful over the last year in helping me look beyond the answers that I knew and realize that there's actually something more that I need to know. So I'm really hoping that today we'll start that process of looking beyond the obvious and stopping at the first right answer. There are two tragedies in one. One is when you go the extra mile in the wrong direction, and the other one is when you stop at the first right answer. And certainly, in facing the challenges of retirement with a YRE, I um, have the opportunity, in relative financial security for the majority of people, to explore many of the options that, as a younger person, you wouldn't have been able to operate or think about. So. The whole thing about being comfortable with the question, not the answer, is totally counterintuitive to to the way I've lived my life. We counted the other day, Lurato, graduated from the National Institute of Death, where where she's been a student at the end of last year. It was the 22nd graduation that our immediate family had endured. I can see Gadi Amos uh, with my eyes closed. Um, we tended to have be been a family that has pursued answers to get understanding. And I've suddenly realized that you know, the answers are irrelevant. I did an M4 in bioethics when Murata, our fourth daughter, um, was meant to die. How do we cope with HIV AIDS pandemic? And a lot of the research for two years was around kids dying because of HIV-AIDS, then antiretrovirals kicked in. And the question around HIV-AIDS changed from what do we do with them until they die to what do we do with them now that they're living. And I had two years of bioethics which came up with an answer which overnight with the rollout of antiretrovirals became a dummy. I knew a lot about the wrong stuff. Okay? So it's quite interesting. So the questions about the next thing are the things that I want to enable you to do better at the end of a seminar like today. Um, it's not what you need to know, not that the right answers. It's what you do with what you already know. And that's the, the, the big thing. On the... In front of your booklet, if you, you open up the, the first page, page one, that says, The DNA of My Values, I just quoted a verse with a rather flippant, but not entirely relevant comment next to it. From Psalm 139, the Bible describes us as being fearfully and wonderfully made. And I've called that not the madness of Psalm 139, but the madness. Because those two things are paradoxical. We are fearfully and wonderfully. We'd have ever thought, it's almost oxymoron, it's wrong putting those words together, but that's some of the craziness, the breadth, the spectrum of the potential of each one of you. There's stuff in you that's been built up over the years, stuff that you started learning as a child about life stuff that you've learned through mistakes that you made. Most of us grew up, and and I was guilty as charged of this, of believing mistakes were things that you were embarrassed about, that you swept under carpet, or you denied all liability for someone else's fault. Um, Because that was the culture that pervaded education and every... um, when, When you were at school, you were right or wrong. I read this morning about a, a school teacher in America who was fired for giving zero grade because they hadn't handed an assignments because the school had a no less than 50% grading policy. So doing nothing, still got 50%. That's the world we're living in now. But we had very black and white things. Um, one of the real education initiatives, and quite involved in education now, the best. Education initiative I know is a young guy in Cape Town who's celebrating what learners don't know and basically he has a diagnostic tool for mathematics and for language which picks out and identifies the cognitive gaps in foundational learning this may be the answer to our education crisis in South Africa to help people deal with what they don't know rather than just layer on stuff they should know. So one of the challenges facing us as we journey into this um, retirement dialogue and conversation is to become increasingly comfortable with asking the questions, checking what we do know what we don't know, and then deciding what to do with that information. But if we only choose to do what many of us have been taught to do, is ignore our bad side, our shadow side, and pretend it doesn't exist and somebody else's problem, um, we've got a problem. So the first exercise I'd like you to do and this is part of the, the pattern we are going to follow through in a couple of exercises is not present you with a silver bullet of the answer, but actually help you start this internal processing of who am I and what am I going to do? Now the who and you thing is what we call into the common ground jargon your DNA or what's central to you, what's core to who you are as an individual. So there were booklets when you came in, there were some pencils, we can get you one if you don't have one, but I'd like you to spend the next 10 minutes doing the exercise on page 1 and 2. On page 1, step 1, place a check mark, little tick, next to the values in the following list that are important to you. Now these aren't esoteric values like integrity, honesty. Um, we've listed here the values that are more the actions, the verbs, the things you do, like is independence important to you? Is financial security? Is authority? Is achievement? Go through those and pick those values which actually could be your DNA. These are who you are. That's important to you. At the moment, don't share it with anyone because some of them may be embarrassing. So you don't, and the, this is the name and shame exercise, but just look deep into yourself and say what's important to me. The second step of the exercise is for you to, Jot down those values, the top five, the most important values to you, jot them down and then ask yourself the question, do I get my feel good from achieving this at work or during retirement? Because that's one of the big shifts we're going to have to make. For me at work annual performance reviews, it was quite easy to get feedback. Um, In a a retired space, there's only one person who gives me feedback, and I don't take it that well. (laughs) It's different. So in a retirement space, increasingly I've had to develop feedback mechanisms about me talking to me, and less dependent on that external ratification. So the purpose of the exercise, find out those values that really drive your behaviours. So work out whether they work or whether they retirement things and then process how you're going to in a retirement space and if you're not there yet, what you plan to do, if you are there, what you are doing, how do you tick those things? So for instance, if financial security were a priority for me, obviously through work, that's how to work to build up pensions, but during retirement. It's about how do you live on your employee pension. Do you have RAs? Do you have Cetrics Investments? Do you need trusts? Um, What about the possibility of a windfall? Like my mom who passed away was a massive windfall to us. It enabled a whole lot of stuff. What are the, the things that you're looking at in retirement that are going to let you feel good about those things that you value most? So 10 minutes just to work through your list. Then I said privately... You're brave, and this isn't necessarily going to be an easy thing to do. You share the information with a significant other. Not to expose your soft underbelly, but to journey together with someone that you trust into some dialogue about those things that are important to you. And allow yourself to be rich in which on that journey. So, ten minutes to pick some boxes. Okay, I'm going to break into your thinking now, but first of all let me just commend you on being good listeners and good doers. <laughs> you doers of the word here. Love the fact that you actually have focused and engaged. As I look across the room, one of the evidences of, of DNA that I see is a seriousness and an intent to make this work for you in growing into the possibility of retirement. And I'm stopping exercise before completion. I know you haven't finished it, but purposely, because this isn't the silver bullet. There isn't a the right answer. But I'm hoping you'll take the book booklet home, which is why would it carry to people, And you will actually wrestle with these things, because um, some of us do things in the spur of the moment. Others are reflectors. Most of us are a combination of those things. But I'd love you to use the stock as a discussion starter as you journey with your significant other around these things. And you know, values are interesting things. One of the challenges for you is to declare your value and then test whether it exists. And that's quite an eye opener. When Narada came to live with us, we met her when she was um, 18 months old and dying, living in a children's home, at the crossroads. And then one of those things that changed the Department of Health um, changed their children's home because kids were living for family reunification. And at the age of eight, the said to us, having come to us every weekend and over holidays, can I come and live with you permanently? And that's what happened. So in June, July school vacation, she finished off at the Kani Primary in Crossroads, left Beautiful Gate Home moved to Pineland and was enrolled at Mary Klein, a school for very impaired kids and observatory. First day of a new school, I spent the, um, time togging her up, getting her good, she looked fantastic, with dressed her. but this was Cape Town, July about the 15th. it was bucketing down and rain, and I had to take my daughter to school. So Sue got her shiny and polished and well-dressed and backpack on, um, when she was already went to the front door, it was bucketing down. I ran to my car. I've got a stupid, frivolous little Mazda MX-5, which leaks, and luckily we had the hood up. Um, pouring of rain, got into the car, water dripping down my neck. Switched on, rev to warm up. Put up, put on the heater because I'm quite a compassionate and father. Um, so when she got in, would be okay, and then I waited. And there was Willow standing in the street with the big backpack on and we dog got the school. And I said, come. But she's dead. So sign language, that wasn't the right sign. She said, I was waving. So she waved back. Was it? Yeah, So she waved a bit more. So I hooted. But she's dead. didn't go. So eventually I got up the car. Quite mad, ran back up the stoop, grabbed her hand and said, What's wrong? I'm ready. Why didn't you come? She looked at me and said, Because you haven't opened the door for me. So, what she had seen is I'm of the sort of generation where when you go to the car, I open the door for Sue, and that's the indication to go and sit down, and I pose the door. And unbeknown to me, Marata had been watching my behavior relative to a woman. Her expectation was she should enjoy the same privilege. Did I have the value of respecting women? No. I had the value of respecting someone. And I had to do a value checkup in my relationship with an eight year old girl in our house. So, The thing about values is if you identify what's important to you with that significant other who will not judge you but will help you see yourself better. Talk about those things because when push comes to shove, when default comes into play, you are going to be motivated and you're going to be catalyzed by fundamentally what your values are for me going into this grandparent phase, um, I've chosen because of the value that I choose to hold, that when we sit down on a Sunday night and sort of fill out our diaries for the week, soon I both knock out Monday afternoon. Monday afternoon, um, my eldest daughter is a carrier equivalent at our church and she has a lot of meetings. We get to fetch the twins and you get them for the afternoon. An amazing thing for those of you who have grandchildren, you know this, for those of you who look for grandchildren, you discover it. the best thing in the world. They bless you twice. Once when they come, and once when they go. Uh, yeah, that's the sort of reality. So Monday afternoon, we prioritize the, the girls. Our second daughter is a typical second daughter. She's looking both up and down, and she wants her share of everything. So we get Noah on Tuesday afternoon because he should also have a bit of bumper and ganny. Bumper is quite an interesting one. My granddaughters are uh, have Barbies and Ken. And you know, good looking there. All those Kens have massive six packs. And my granddaughter looked at me and said, "Bumper, you've got a five pack." That, that's where the bump came from. <laughs> so on Tuesday it's Noah. So I'm choosing to live out the value of being a connected grandparents to grandchildren by prioritizing behavior in my diet and I choose because I want to to fit in other things around that, and it's the exception, not the rule that I violate that particular value so that, 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 that's the whole the importance of value, so this more than anything else, and most of in the seminars they don't talk about values they talk about some of the other things we'll touch on in greater detail but I'm absolutely convinced that as these fearfully and wonderfully made people, made and shaped by loving God, we have a uniqueness about us that we are going to carry into retirement, not something we're going to discover in retirement. And this whole thing of of guidance from the Christian context, the metaphor has often been looking through the, the windscreen to where God's leading you, and certainly retirement for many people is that sort of thing, like, you're going to. far better way to establish where you're going to is to look in the rearview mirror. Because that's the you where you've come from. And if you are a person with a, a faith, it will be a journey in which God is held in the palm of his hand. Where, well, days are written in his book before one came to be, where what you see in the rearview mirror is a picture of God's faithfulness, his guidance, his shaping, his directness. And you know what? The next step, even if it's retirement, is just going to be the next step in the same direction. Eugene Peterson, um, one of his best books, is the book, of Long Obedience, in the same direction. And I reckon if you want to know what is going to look like, look where you've come from. Look who you've traveled with. And the next step isn't a leap into a bottomless chasm. It's just the next step in a preordained journey. Quite interesting. It's not a journey you go on alone. So if me at the center of my world, quite a good place to be, there's obviously what I call the God dimension. If you have faith, you you in a, a process that's designed by another. You also have a lot of professional help available. I'm going to touch on that basically. Um, do not try and write your own will. It's a highly technical, very, very difficult thing. Do not try and become your own investment advisor. I inherited a share portfolio when my mom died, and for all of one month, I played the stock market. And my first trade at the dot-com bubble IT thing was I invested money in a share called Brainware. And I don't you remember it? You probably don't, because within one month it became brain dead. But that dot-com thing just crashed, and I was left a bag in my face and discovered that I could just give it to a stockbroker, who didn't have my emotional connotation to an uh, air force in front you know? which you can do that. He just simply did the right thing by it. So there are a lot of professional people that are out there to help you with those things that require expertise, and they're also those friends or significant others. So you're in a lovely position at the centre of three very, very significant inputs. Now, I'd really encourage you to test your values, what you think about yourself with those people in a quiet time, in a discussion with a a former financial advisor or a lawyer or something like that, with your friends to see who you really are. Okay, as you get your seats, just to transition into the second one where we have a look at the possibility or the dream. Um, the other magnificent audio visual, and I hope you appreciate that we're not doing death by PowerPoint. Um, I don't like death by PowerPoint. Our preferred means of communication is totally antiquated. We like flip charts, so the fact that we're using a whiteboard is quite a significant technological challenge, but, but we'll work on it. So, one of the things about this transition into the possibility is we've got to move in our second picture from what I call the current reality to the desired future. And this is a basic business planning tool. We do it for strategic planning in companies and stuff. In order to get from a current reality to the desired future, there's certain things that you have to do. Um, Current reality, overweight, desired future, comrades, medal, nine months of running programs. Okay? That's the sort of thing. So, hopefully at the end of today, you'll come away with the beginning of a list of things to do to move from current reality to a desired future of your own creation. You don't become a victim of your desired future. You get the chance to live into it. So, I want to touch on a couple of things, sort of statistical things that... Um, Headlines and things that are worth keeping an eye on and things to keep in on your horizon because these are all the six factors that will impact on retirement. And the first one is this, it's this horrible reality that enough is never enough. How long is a piece of string? Can you ever have enough money or enough security? And our experience is no, because there are always other lack of things to go after. So, one of the things you've got to put to bed is what do I actually not want, but what is it that I need to thrive in this new space? And this whole thing of um, reframing our expectations of what the world, of as owes us to a set of expectations based on what's possible. What's possible? You know, one of Sue's fantasies, which isn't possible for us yet, is to do one of those Mediterranean cruises where they feed you lot and you see exotic places. Maybe we'll get to do it. Our reality was that two years ago we walked the Camino. (laughs) Not quite a, a luxurious tour, but it was what we could do, given what we had. So, this whole thing of there's never enough, it's one of those tensions that we have to live with. Um, for those of you who worked for the Johnson Johnsons or the motor companies who had defined benefit pension funds, defined contribution or provident funds, probably had a statutory combination contribution of about 7.5% that the employee paid into some sort of fund. You had the option of topping up to 15%. If you are still employed and contributing to a fund, do it. Uh, Go to maximum contribution to your pension fund. It makes tax sense and it makes long sense because the reality is that the way pension funds and retirement provision is structured at the moment goes back to about a hundred and maybe two years, years ago, in the mid um, 1800s. German actuaries worked out life expectancy and things like that before there was inflation, before there were lots of things. So this notion that in your working life you can save 7.5% of your salary to fund 100% of your retirement, the actually just doesn't work. So one of the hard realities is that there is work to be done to make financial provision. The other thing, and this is the second point that we feel particularly in South Africa, is this myth called inflation. Officially the government declared um, over the last two years has said Inflation is between four and five percent. But that number is actually a politically motivated number, not an economically based number. The reality of inflation, it is more than that. And when you're living on a fixed income or a declining income, year on year effect of in inflation just this month. Only petrol go up? one hundred and forty a litre. Yeah. Suddenly my bicycles become sexy, you know. Um, the, how does that Impact the inflation basket, you know what? It isn't really in it, it was averaged up. Um, we've just discovered with, with Dr. Bulls um, that medical inflation is probably 15 to 20% per annum and grown. Um, if you look at cars, and particularly what's Brexit going to do to car prices and to many things, there's so many external things because we're part of a macroeconomic system that. Inflation and what it really means is something that we're going to have to take into consideration. And the only way to deal with inflation is to be not as risk averse as conventional wisdom tells you. Conventional wisdom says, in retirement, make very safe investments because your risk profile—you have less time to recover from market fluctuations. But that was very good logic in a different age. Maybe there are other right answers that we should be looking at to stop inflation from eating away at our dreams. Um, the third reality in our current reality is this whole thing of longevity. Um, Sue's mom is 90. She said the other day she's probably going to live to what her is. She's in her old age home. They feed her well, they love her well, they look after her well. And she's in a happy bubble. She has no stress, no strain. Not a lot. She's gonna go on forever. A reality. But then so are we. Sue's condition that she referenced early on could have probably killed someone a while ago. But now, after ten days in hospital and throwing lots of medically inflated pulls at her, um, might have rang. Mum may have the reality is that in this room Many of us are probably going to live, like my mother-in-law, into our 90s, maybe beyond that. You know, some of the stats, if you're a 55-year-old male, you get a 76% chance of reaching 90. That's an average, like 76% of 55-year-old males will reach 90. Um, 82% of females will. Uh, Those are incredible statistics. They're not averages. That's... Yeah, eight out of ten women in this room are probably going to live till 90. Better access to, to medicine, better drugs, cheaper drugs, better food. And one of our cheap thrills is to, to wander around shops. I love shopping with my eyes and you look, walk around the spa shop at the moon. so they can see what different coffees people London. You've got them and you've got other ones. And just, just a Curiosity that I have about so what's different about living here? And there are quite a few things relative to Cape Town, but oh you know, boy, this isn't an advert, make, It's just observation. There was some lekker stuff in that shop, and um, if you have the money, you could eat incredibly well. And it's a neighbourhood store. We don't have to be as dependent as previous generations on rains, on good crops, on the most beacons and lodgings are facing now the devastating effects of droughts. We actually in a well-structured world where longevity is going to become a reality, not a possibility, for many of us. Um, above the age of 65, a person's risk of developing Alzheimer's disease or one of those dementia-related things roughly doubles every five years. So it's estimated that one in 14 people over the age of 65—so I'd be one of them—1 in 14 is beginning to experience the effects of dementia or early onset Alzheimer's. Um, It should be a worry for those of you in that bracket. That's a medical fact. It's not an opinion. So there's lots we can do. That's the thing. A, a reference, if you want to take a photograph of it, one of the best books I've read, a guy called Tom Roth wrote a book, unbelievably simple, Eat, Move, Sleep. And that's one of the answers to coping with the inevitability of longevity. What I like about the book, it's written in an incredibly accessible way. When you read it, it affects you a bit buff, it's a bit simple. Then you flick over to the information at the back, and you'll see that he references 408 medical journal articles. So what Tom Rath, a very clever guy, works for Gallup, was diagnosed with cancer, and it was a fairly um, bad prognosis cancer. Young kids, he said, I've got to do everything I can to ensure I live for as long as I can and see my kids grow. So he took a sabbatical from Gallup, he leveraged all their resources and I say four hundred and eight scientific peer reviewed articles on the basis of an incredibly accessible book. And the basic message is watch what you eat. Move as often as you can, sleep more. So I may look decrepit, but I'm actually a closet yuppie. I have an iWatch, an Apple Watch, be impressed. The only functionality I use in this watch is the alarm. I don't use the alarm to wake up. I can set a sleep alarm, and every single night after reading that book at a quarter to ten, at nine forty-five, my watch sets an alarm to remind to go to I actually don't need the alarm to wake up at six o'clock. And one of the advantages of decrepitness is you wake up earlier every morning anyway. It's quite nice. So, I send in the lab to go to sleep because sleep is vital. A lot of the neuroscience that, that Sue's been part of the um, just emphasised again and again and again the unbelievable therapeutic value of good sleep. And there's some basic things like um, screen time, effect of, of screens on eyes, charging your phones outside bedrooms, not watching TV until you go to sleep, not having a TV in your bedroom. There are a whole lot of things that we can actually practically do to improve the quality of our sleep and benefit from the incredible therapeutic, scientific, proven medical advantages of well-rested bodies. So, longevity inevitable, but not terminal. Okay. Um, the other thing that all of us are facing is volatility. And goodness knows. So we, we gave up on TB a while ago. I have an Apple TV and I have a clever son-in-law so I can watch Sky news, which used to be my old man joy in life. I could watch how the Queen and her friends lived a genteel life. Man alive, is it a bunch of rubbish now? Brexit dominates everything. And my one of my simple joys in life of relaxing with, with spy news presenters has just vanished because they are so angry and excited about the mess they've dug themselves into. There's actually no funding, but it's a window of the world. And Sky News, Al Jazeera, and um, Shireen's Airbnb where staying, they've got ABC News. We watched a bit of that last night and scared ourselves about the flight back to Cape Town because they had graphics of the plane that crashed in Ethiopia. The world is in our lounges. We are bombarded by nothing not the truth, but what we want us to hear. And very often, and this isn't a conspiracy theorist, but very often there's a story behind the story. The most classic example is the political affiliation of um, the funders of TV stations, and probably the worst or the best known is Fox News in America. Fox News is an unashamedly Republican Donald Trump thing. So nothing that there's Orange Machine does can ever be reported on badly. Everything he does is good. So if you're a Fox News watcher in America, the world revolves around Donald Trump. Al Jazeera, if you happen to watch that, that is a, a basically Middle East funded radio station based in London, but it presents a world view through the Middle Eastern men. Fascinating stuff. So we all aware of all that's happening in the world. You don't have to be terrified about it, but you have to be cognizant of it. Because we're living in a volatile world. So a good book if you have time to read. And you know, my reading fixation, I like books. One of my challenges in life is Kindles. I hate Kindles. Kindles are not books. I like something tactile about a book. So I'm an idiot who had a conference, here's about a good book, often orders it on Amazon one click for my Kindle and it arrives and when the conference speaker gets the boring, I have to read the first chapter and I like I read so much, on the way home I buy the book. It's can kind of because I love books. One of our massive challenges has been getting rid of books who are like friends um, and I had to give away these three books, political science books, things that have been friends sitting in my bookcase looking at me for about this complete works of Shakespeare oh man, that's like reading a King James version Bible, I don't understand it but we, we've just chucked these things away we've got to be aware of the volatile environment and we've got to navigate through that, that's the point about volatility fifth point I want to make and this is particularly relevant to those of us who choose to live in South Africa is this whole taxation story in South Africa and those of us who have had the privilege of missing jobs, um, we're going to find our pension provision eroded by the realities of taxation. We have a population of close to 57 million at the moment. 3.9 million pay personal tax. That's about 3% of the population. We all pay sales tax. or personal tax. About 3% of the population are funding much of the 1.7% are South Africans contribute to 80% of the tax base. And my guess is that even we come to the retirement Seminars, early on the Saturday morning, most of you probably fit into 1.7%. We have a classic country where the first and third world are cheap by giant, And the third world has first world aspirations. One of the most transformative things in the history of South Africa, I believe, a long view of history will say it was not Nelson Mandela's release from prison. I think it was something that had happened before then. I think it was 1976 when SABC was allowed to introduce public broadcasting television. I think it was a Kali Knutzer boxing match was the first thing you saw. But suddenly, with the rollout in 1976 of television, the third world component of South Africa had first world standards living in their homes. And perceptions, ambitions started to change. So we live in this funny world where where in South Africa particularly, we are living in the legacy of an apartheid ideology that said when there's a change in government, you will get what you didn't get before. So there was a sense of apartheid which politically the government has had to, and they've done incredibly well. You look at the number of RDP houses, you look at the availability of electricity, massive strides to be made in this country. But at a cost. one of our Cape Town phenomenons, and I don't know if it happens in this moment, is almost on a daily basis, in our letterbox, we'll get a little strip of paper, sometimes handwritten, sometimes typed at a, a um, sort of email sent to me saying, garden boy looking for work experience and then they drop in a descriptor which is a nationality experienced Malawian Zambian Kenyan so in the Cape Town job market for people looking for work they define themselves as good workers by defining themselves as non-South Africans because the experience is that we live in a culture in South Africa where pre-democracy election promises have given us a psyche, and this is a generalization, there are the exceptions, a psyche of give it to, not give me the opportunity to contribute to it. So, so this taxation thing for people facing poverty in South Africa, we are going to face increasing tax burden. We just have to is the only way the, the 1.7% of going to pay for the majority of the, the country. And then the other one, and just touch on very, very briefly before I hand over, well, we're going to watch a video, then I'm going to hand over to Sue again, is the other thing that we need to face in taxation, and we wrestling with it, we were blessed by it. Um, I mentioned earlier on that the year my mum died, we were able to to go a different path. And stayed her mom of back to be a preschool teacher to an academic group that led to where she is now. So as people in retirement, we face inevitability of death. And for those of us who have children, grandchildren, next of kin, we also face the unbelievable privilege of giving them a hipster. Giving them something which they don't deserve. It's almost unmerited grace. It's something that is a real get out of jail card. It was for us, and certainly in my thinking with my grandchildren, we've got quite technical. We've gone for living annuities, and I'm not going to get technical about different investment vehicles other than to say that the reason why I went for living annuity is that I draw a pension based on the performance of that annuity, but on my debt, Sue gets the whole lot. She gets all that money, it becomes hers a non-living annuity, an ordinary retirement annuity, on the death of the annuity holder, the lump sum diminishes and then disappears. So I've had to my bets. I'm choosing a lesser pension so there can be a bigger residue because I'd love my kids to experience the bittersweet thing of losing a parent, and getting to get out of jail for It's an amazing thing. So Think about those things. Many of our contemporaries say, our kids are going to paddle their own canoe. We're going to ski. The number of pensions would take up skiing. You know what skiing is? It's an acronym for spending the kids' inheritance. Okay? So there, there are a lot of um, silver foxes who are out there jawling. Look at some of the American stuff about cruises. They hire whole cruise ships to go to Leicester, And you've got to be over 70 sign up for this cruise. It's quite scary. But that scheme, scheme that's skiing. The skiing at the extreme. So those realities is never enough. Inflation is a reality. Longevity is going to be something we have to challenge ourselves with. Volatility of the world is a reality we live with. Taxation is going to hit us as South Africans right here. And we have the ability once we shrug off this border coil To leave a legacy to those that we love, and those are things that we have to weigh up. Now, going to go to now, is going to help us to understand some of the head space in which this sort of thinking has land. Okay. So, is everyone is everyone still here? You're still in the room, still
1: listening. Yeah, so I'm just going to share, sort of really based on a lot of the reading that I've done, even in the last three months, which because of the crisis kind of space that I moved into, I'm one of these people I've got to read. I've got to find out what's happening here, what can I do, and everything. And losing one's functionality. You know, as I said, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Breathing is quite a vital thing, and then you can't breathe. And every step you take, you get out of breath. It's really, really difficult. And so when you one of the things that I've been reading about has been actually this whole transition and the whole idea of the two halves of life. And the first half of life is about our functionality. Um, and I think I didn't think about anything past that because I was in it and enjoying it and I thought i will be fine and even in the last six months I'll fight it and I can still carry on. Um, in fact, the idea of even stopping work scared me. And, and I thought, you know, how, you know it's, it's so much part of me and it's so much what I love, you know. And so some of the reading has really been, been helpful for me. Um, and realizing that our life's work is not the full journey, but when we finish our life's work, there's still more. And, and I think just little realizations have touched me, so I'm going to share them because um, this, is, this is what has been helpful in this last crisis time. The first half of life is like the raft. But there's still the shore. Now, I only thought about the raft. I wasn't even thinking about the shore. And the shore is an amazing place to go and explore. The first half of life is discovering the script. And the second half is actually writing it and owning it, which speaks actually of something maybe even a bit better, which I didn't consider. The first half is like writing the text. And the second half is the commentary on the text. What are we thinking about and how are we growing through it? And so, so what I've been reading about is that the first half of life is like the container. Okay, that's the container. And we have to build a strong container. We mean identity, actually. A lot of our identity is wrapped up in the stuff we do. You know, how we parent our kids, how we, what a friend we are, what kind of church member we are, what kind of work we do. It, it, it fulfills us. And the second um, part of our life is actually filling that container with contents. What is that? Um, And if you think about that container, it's the very purpose of our lives. Often we sort of find something that we enjoy and want to do, and it gives us purpose. It's all about achievement, structure, goals, growth. It's about successfully surviving. And it really becomes our sort of platform and foundation of life. And it actually makes us what makes us feel significant. And I think that the world supports, rewards, validates, yeah, no, affirms it, and we feel good about that. Um, and in fact, we need a strong container to be able to cope with what is going to happen later. If you don't know, that sort of becomes a haze. But actually, the whole point is building that strong container is the very thing that is going to be the thing that will hold us when something happens that we didn't expect. And I think the voices of authority and the rules of life guide us through this. And I think it's all about hard work, and we, get, we enjoy that. That's what we want to do. We were made to work. Work is good. Supporting our family, contributing to the world, making a difference in the world. And it actually makes us feel fulfilled. But what are we really doing when we are doing what we are doing? And these are the questions I'm starting to ask. What am I actually doing when I'm doing that? And mostly, can I be aware that on the shore there can be something better? And it's not just about surviving, the survival dance. Is there a sacred dance that comes after that survival dance? And the survival dance is very much I'm sure a lot of people will relate to you. Sometimes your life is just about surviving, you the do all those and you love it and get a buzz out of it. But is there a sacred dance? Something else that's gonna come. Something that will fill our And I think my I, I think what I've had to do is face my fear of something that will be less advanced. And just take my mom to an old age home and just go quickly back to that story when I put her there, it was not so bad. And I was going to Helen Keller, and it's an it's a assisted living um, place, and everyone was on walkers. And I was walking, so sad. And I would feel so guilty and feel so sad, and I would leave her in room and walk out, and everybody looked just, it was terrible. But I've actually changed now, I've been 10 years later, and I'm in a and Keller all the time, and I've changed my thinking about that place. And I go in there, and I text the ladies, They all sit there. No one's reading. No one's doing anything. They're just sitting there. But they're happy. My mom is happy with ever seen her before. And it fascinates me, because I just thought, you know, you live your life, you have your life, you know, then you have to retire and kind of do this thing. Then you get the old and sick that, and you know. Like, <laughs> I that. That's kind of how I was thinking about it. And and I'm seeing joy and happiness in people there and in life there, which there's a richness that I'm curious about. And I'm starting to allow myself to think that possibly in life, old age isn't the bad thing, even dementia and all of that. Maybe it maybe there is I mean it talks in the Bible about how long levity is a blessing and that and i how can be a blessing? And um yeah, so so that's that sort of been one of the life bulb moments for me is actually there's something more on the shore that's not so bad. Now, in my late 30s, early 40s, mm-hmm. we ran, I, and did a lot of big running. I did half marathons. in my first um, two oceans half. I didn't, we talk about goal-setting two, and goal-setting through. Now, I goal-set to the end, and I would just get to the end of it, and that's all I wanted to do. And I didn't know that after the end of the two oceans, we went to the tent, and they had the best eggy mayo sandwiches we ever they are amazing and the second two ocean paths I ran all I could think of I'm going to get the eggy mayo sandwiches then I'll we'll get to the end and it's that whole idea there's more and I think that is my fear if I'm loving my work so much can there be more that's even better than so that's just an illustration of that so what shifts us into the second part of our life and I don't think it's necessarily retirement as such it could be it could be. But what happens is this
2: container no
1: longer actually does the job. And it's the whole idea of new wine, old wine, new wine and old wine. There's almost got to be a completely different thing. It can't be the same. And we can't put new wine in old wine. So somehow, something has to happen to the container. The very thing that we define ourselves as identity Everything is we are. Sometimes that has to get broken down or something like that. And the difficult thing about that is that we can't, there's no math for it. I spoke about languaging, and I'm sort of trying to language for myself my journey. But we can't know what ours was going to look like. And I would never have known that my 10 days in hospital last month. My overwhelming feeling, and being as sick as I was, was a piece of crisis. understanding and one morning I was actually reading my bible the woman next to me who wasn't wasn't a person of faith at all she made it quite clear, she said there's a strange piece of nature I said, look what I'm reading and I passed her my daily readings and it was something quite applicable to her around living each day but the moments that you have where you see something richer and more in those very difficult spaces a whole new thing, it's a whole new thing, and it, it can be amazing, so um, I think it's difficult to see that and know that beforehand, something you only know when you're there, you can't you can't actually comprehend it until you've encountered it, so hopefully even just saying these things brings us hope to say that even in the darkest times or whatever you're going to go through, there is going to be light, there's going to be something else, there's a new wine skin here. That is going to hold a richness that is very, very different. Um, So what shifts us then from the first half to the second half? And basically it is when things that come your way, that your usual knowledge and skills and coping mechanisms basically just don't work anymore. So I take an antibiotic antibiotic after antibiotic after antibiotic, and I actually wasn't getting better. It was more and more and more and more. So you hit the edge of your resources, and often it's maybe for people it's pain or some kind of suffering or some kind of failure. Something happens that forces us to look when we otherwise would never have looked. Our normal stuff just can't go on. Something happens and blocks it. Sometimes our bodies stop us. And something happens and that's it, our bodies stop us. And this actually has to happen in order to take us to a further and a larger journey. Um, and I think actually social science. Onto the thing that we know so well, the familiar, because we're actually we're stopping ourselves from going into that other space. And in the spiritual world, we find that we first have to lose something before we can find it again. Matthew 6.25 says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. And it's that whole idea of, that thing, I don't want to let go, it's my significance, so much to me. And yet only in business you find something else that is very different. So the shift yeah, is in to the unknown circumstances or the pain that happens. that shifts one into that space. So then what What does that look like? What does that look like? I'm just curious about what that looks like. I don't know. I think that will unfold. But I think there's certain things that are beautiful about that. Um, I think there's the wisdom that lives in mystery, doubt, and unknown. The unknown. What is unknown? Unknowing is interesting for me. You did know it, and <laughs> now you unknow it. it. Didn't work anymore. Unknowing is quite a fascinating concept. Not it's not forgetting, and it's not unlearning. It's unknowing. So there's mystery, doubt, and I think a lot of wisdom sits in that. I think the ability to hold uncertainty and still be in peace. And I think that's the idea for sure for me, uncertainty of what it looks like, but I can have sense of peace because I know there's going to be something else that's going to be good. I think that in this, the second half, simple meaning can suffice. Um, and I think that sometimes we look for why did this happen and try and get answers. And actually it's not really about answers. Viktor Frankl said the people who survived the concentration camp were the people who could find meaning not people who had answers or people who had explanations but it's finding meaning in those things so in those moments to find that meaning I think another thing that can pull that is a new coherence which is the ability to include paradoxes, opposites I can be happy sad my daughter got married my eldest daughter got married it's terminal i was so excited to be getting married I was also sad and I had a happy sad and I realised we can actually hold sadness, it's weird but it's true, You <laughs> can all happy sadness, I think there's a return to simplicity after having learned from complexity the complexity of our lives is a spin, but we can return to simplicity and then integration that's another one, and integration for me is the essence of well-being, my psychological background coming in here, but everything belongs Sadness needs to last year my fight was i don't want to be a sick person i don't want people to say oh she's not there she's sick again i don't want that but i think what i've had to realize is actually this my illness is part of who i am so i have to integrate not cut it off not pretend it's not there try and go in fourth gear wipe myself out (laughs) get more sick actually integrate it and say, okay, can I thrive in second year? Can I can I integrate this? This is who I am now. I, I'm not thinking too much of the future on bad there's a short. But there's a greater um, yeah, integration. We can suffering and joy can coexist. I love that Ecclesiastes verse where it says, um, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's no comment in between that. And I think of it as mourning and dancing. Because there's sadness in life and we live this long We all have pain, sadness, but we all have it all. We've kind of been there. Not everything, but we've done it. But we can have mourning and dancing. And that's beautiful because that gives us hope. Because in moments when we think of that and we integrate that, we're like, sadness, I'm sorry today. But I can also have joy and I can actually dance as well. There's a greater spaciousness. There So we move from doing to being to a new kind of doing that flows quietly, much more quietly. So so what do we need to do? So well, this is kind of the work maybe the work we need to do in that space. Um Eric Erickson was a, a, a developmental psychologist who studied well the lifespan of people and he, he, he said that in every phase of life there's a task that has to be fulfilled. So like a teenagers you need to form their identity and then the next task is are you going to be with someone or alone, intimacy versus isolation, how are you going to work in the world, whether you have a partner or not? And then the, most of our adult life is generativity, We actually want to give back and get that's our container, really, the generativity part of life, and we're giving back and contributing to the feel good. And when we successfully fulfill those tasks through life, we can go to the next one, successfully. And the last one he says is, in reflection, in this last phase of life, um, you reflect on your life. And you can either reflect with integrity. That's how it was, and and almost accept integrity. What else to say? (laughs) Oh, that's terrible. But in in, in some ways, even if it was terrible, you can still bring it into integrity. Yes, this is who my life is. And almost like acceptance of it. And out of that, and out of the learning and reflecting in the life, is wisdom. Because you get insight into what happened and what was wrong with anything. That's actually our task in life now, after the generativity, the container one, is actually reflection, and actually being able to sit with it and process those things. So, so that's part of our work. But the second part of our work is actually being able to hold opposites intentions, and leave girls of black-white thinking, that's so rigid. We know by now it probably doesn't really work anywhere. Um, And be graceful towards younger people who still have that. The second thing is facing our shadow side. Now our shadow side is going to be with us right to the end, and that's kind of our thing that we have to deal with. And our shadow is actually the opposite of our strength. So our strength, if you're a strong leader, you may be a bit bossy sometimes, if you're a very chilled person, it can often be chaotic or running late. So your shadow side is opposite of your good side. So we kind of have it. And we have to deal with our shadow. By this time and now we probably settled. it. But there's another part of our shadow that is quite interesting. Um, Matthew 7:5 says, First take the bank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to move the step from your brother's side. So this is how the shadow side works in us, is that when something upsets you, then you have a very strong reaction out of proportion to what actually happens. That means your shadow sign is being expressed. And this is something that we have to almost process through life. Now, this happened to me last week, so I've a very recent example. We've got a, a holiday house at Annis and that belonged to my mom and we've just redone it. We, um, well, it's been renovated and it's beautiful. And three sisters, I'm the middle one. And we were at the house, the holiday house, and I needed to get blinds, so I needed to choose the blinds. So I'm sending photos to the two sisters and the sisters, do you like this one? That one this one, this one? this one? My eldest sister just came back with Ruth must decide, which is my youngest, and it was triggered. Why does she decide? I'm sitting with the stuff. I'm in the house, <laughs> and everything from the bossy older sister to you sit in the back seat, you're the second You know, all of the stuff just came up for me And I was so angry with her it. And Anne was like, tell her, just tell her <laughs> This isn't her problem This is actually my problem This is my shadow side coming up And that's how it comes up Because we feel something so strongly And we want to project We project onto groupings of people We project onto our spouse We project onto somebody else And they're the bad person And our journey is actually to own this, To in our own see what it is and deal with it Sometimes it's stuff that comes from the past and sometimes it's something that's more recent. But our shadow side is always going to be there and it can make us angry if people, or else if we settle it actually we can move and keep growing into a better space. The person who's done their own shadow work will be more peaceful and more accepting and they can accept the gold and the weaknesses in ourselves and in other people. So I just want to end off by reading two lovely extracts
0: from Richard Moore's book,
1: calling up this, when he talks about these things of the, um, I want to And it's just lovely, and I just wanted to get into Okay, this is really talking about the second part of life. Your concern is not so much about what you love anymore, but... To love, no, not not so much to have what you love anymore, but to love what you have right now. The rules are different now. You often see it in older folks freedom to give things away, hoarding, possessing, collecting, impressing others with their things, their hearts, their travels, become of less and less interest to them. Inner brightness, still holding life's sadness and joy, its own reward, its own satisfaction, and it is their best and truest gift to the world. Such elders are the grand parents of the world. Children and other adults feel so safe and loved around them. And they themselves feel so needed and helpful to children, teens, and midlife adults. And they are. They are in their natural flow. I just love that one. And then the other one is This is also the second half of life. People tend to move towards a happy and needed introversion as we get older. Such introversion is necessary to unpack all that life has given us and taken from us. We engage in what is now a necessary and somewhat natural contemplation. We should not be surprised that most older people do not choose loud music, needless diversions or large crowds. We move towards under-stimulation. If we are on the schedule of soul, life has stimulated us enough and now we have to process it, integrate it, however unconsciously. Silence in poetry starts becoming a more natural voice, and a more beautiful ear at this stage. Much of life starts becoming highly symbolic and connecting, and little things become significant metaphors for everything else. Silence is the only language spacious enough to include everything, and to keep us from slipping back into dualistic judgments. So Let us love those last two quotes. Um, but I, I just want to end up by saying I think my journey, even over the last few months, even though it's still a new journey for me, I think the thing that has given me hope is the sense that there is more and that there's a certain there's something I can look forward to, even if I let go, I have to let go of my work or I have to reduce my work a lot even if I have to let go of it, I have a sense of hope and a sense of like almost anticipation of what could be happening next and how it can go and actually that there's a richer state. As Anne said, you look in the rear view mirror and you see where we come from. God, it's not going to drop us here. It's going to take us on a journey into a space that is even more beautiful. And I really do believe that we do end over there. I don't think we end here.
0: So now we're going to show you a quick video to help you discover something that's deep within inside you that could have incredible impact. And you're going to finish the session with a video and then a bit of reflection in a handout. But first, eyes to screen, please.
2: Exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. That the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park, and despite efforts by humans to control them, They'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behaviour of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges, and immediately those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to to eat the trees, And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks more weasels, more foxes, more badgers, ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs and the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed behaviour of the rivers. They began to meander less, there was less erosion, the channels narrowed, more pools formed, more riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitat. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilised the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there is a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transform not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography.
0: The way to get from there to there is what the video calls the trophic cascade. And I'd like to suggest that within each one of you, there is a wolf. Within each one of you, your lifetime experience, the way you've been shaped and molded through life, is setting you up to do something fairly unique that only you can do. If you beat the Yellowstone, it's massive. And those mountains are big, they've been shaped, over thousands of years, yet in a 30-year time span. Remember, the time dad is around 60, and probably lasting about 90, a 30-year year time span. The challenge for us in retirement is to say, what sort of wolf am I going to be? What is the trophic cascade, which in 30 years' time people look back on and say, I'm so glad Ant soon Sue, or any one of you pitched up because look what's changed because they lived authentically doing what only they could do for the benefit of all the because that's what the wolves did they didn't become damn boulders. they didn't become eagles they were just wolves they were good wolves they did what wolves do and the impact changed the whole ecosystem yes is what I believe is the potential within that vessel of people moving from this space into this space, where the best is yet to be. Now, to help you do that, we've got an exercise which you won't do now. We're going to break the tea and coffee. It's a reflective exercise that's in the middle two pages of your booklet, and I've called it my trophic cascade potential. And I'd love you to make time over the next couple of days when the imagery is still fresh about the impact of the wolves in the Yellowstone Park, to work through a couple of the I-cans, I want to and I need to things. Um, the I-can is where you reflect on your unique skill, that whole thing of being fearfully and wonderfully made. What makes you definitively you? How can you use your you in the next phase of life, in the next chapter that you're going to write. I want to. Um, what is it that you dream of doing? Very often when we're contained in the box, um, we put our dreams on hold. Write down some of the things that you actually dream of doing, that you believe you can, that you want to. And then jot down some actions about how you're going to achieve those dreams. And then we steep our traffic cascade in reality, the wolves had to kill things to live. They needed to do something. So there was some hard stuff, some messy stuff, some stuff which is the rite of passage that enabled it all to happen. So spend a bit of time reflecting on what you need to do. The not nice, but necessary stuff. The nitty-gritty of life. And then, and here's the real challenge, what will I do differently Tomorrow. So in order to progress from the top box to the new vessel, we can't just sit here and join the new box. We've got to believe that on the shore there's something better. And like training for comrades, it's that first morning, nine months before the race, you take the first step out of bed, it's actually going to get you to the end. So you want to finish this trophy cascade exercise by encourage you to work through the I can, I want to, and I need to, and actually translate that into the first step in the new direction. In this last session, we want to do two things. We want to give you a chance to, again, collate some of your thoughts, a bit of paper. We also are going to finish off with some questions and answers. So if you have any sort of burning questions that you want to ask, we have a couple of um, very easy questions that we'll ask ourselves if you're too embarrassed. And because they're easy questions, you know the answers. But if there are any questions that would benefit the group regarding retirement or where you're at, and you think that your question would be maybe something that someone else would like to ask, or, and I love this one, maybe you want to ask us the questions that you think your neighbours would have asked if they were here. That, that's like saying, I'm phoning for a friend, you know, and we'll understand what you're doing. Um in, in this phase now, we want to talk a little bit about this desired future. So we've steeped in current reality. Sue's spoken about the language, but in order to get to this desired future, what are some of the things that we need to know about the desired future? Because it's only when we know where we're going to what we need to do that we can start an action plan. And this is a bit where I'm going to get very, very practical. We didn't, because some of you may have these things already, print out copious handouts. But what we have done, at the very back of the very last page, I've got the email of kerry at sterlingbaptist.za.net. Is that right? That, that's it. Um, and I've sent to Kerry two of the documents that I'm going to refer to now. If you would like a copy, if you don't have something similar, please drop her an email and she'll send them to you with pleasure. The first one is the, the yuckiest one, and I'll do that first to get it out of the way. Um, my financial advisor, Martin, works with Liberty. So it's a Liberty handout. It's probably not the only one, but it's the one that I found useful and I'm familiar with. And it's called a In Case of Emergency Document. It's an eight-page document that is amazing. And I'm going to just run through it quickly, um, to tell you the sort of stuff that I hadn't thought about but which I'm so glad the document prompted me to think about because I we have a, a strange thing so we on Facebook be impressed mainly so we can show off pictures of grandchildren but I every year get to celebrate my friend Jeremy Duffy's birthday Jeremy died about six years ago now and Unfortunately, he died with his Facebook password. It's impossible to deactivate his Facebook presence. And every year, his daughter Karen sends him, in the hopes that they have Facebook in heaven, a happy birthday, daddy Facebook message, which ends up on my phone. Do you want to live in cyberspace after you're gone? I guess not. Now, this document is the sort of thing that helped me. Make the inevitable transition. We all facing. Um, there is no longevity. You're all facing that glorious transition at some stage. You want to do it well. This document includes obvious things like personal details, your spouse's details. Gives you opportunity to note down next of kin and contact numbers, children, grandchildren, um, domestic staff. One of the things that our, one of our daughters is doing for us is that we all employ the same. Lady to, to clean house. We're now doing our civil responsible thing of the whole UIF thing and doing the back end of employing someone. Um so there's room here for material's details. There's room for contacts who are doctors, lawyers, financial advisor, banker. Do we have an accountant? I've I'm off with numbers. Have a lady Linda who does my tax. It's vitally important that Sue knows how to get hold of Linda, and I'm not here to tell her. Um, medical aid details, wow, that's so important on one form. Then your tax number, bank account number, home bond, um, things like passwords, quite risky to write them down in a document, so you probably want to keep it locked up in a safe or somewhere. But <laughs> we are very, very stupid when it comes to cyber security. We choose to use the number of the house we lived in in America as our password for everything. I'm not going to tell you where we live, but if you discover that, you can clean out the bank tomorrow. And not only do we do it, but our daughter's all do it. So we have like our family password, probably the cyber sleuth's nightmare. But what are your passwords? How, how would you access... Uh, not you, how the next to King, access information that they need, how do they be able to remove Facebook presences and those things that you don't need. Details about annuities, provident funds, short-term insurance, funeral cover, safe deposit boxes, last will and testament. Things about list of assets, jewelry and collection items. Um, we've got an interesting thing now. We're going through a phase prompted by the lady next to Sue in her hospital stay who was probably 80-ish, and she just had a totally unexpected fall and did what many 80-year-olds who fall do. She broke her hip. So she was in next to Sue in the bed, post-op recovery from the hip replacement, and we watched her kids come in possession as they picked up the house she'd lived in for 25 years since her husband died. And as they got rid of junk, or precious possessions, depending on where you looked at it. And as they cleaned up, because your mom wasn't going to be able to go back to the house for 25 years, and we vicariously lived through this trauma, just listening to conversations in the bed next door. So we came home, and the first thing Sue did was she went and. This is really hard for me to do. My mother's. 22 years ago. We had my mother's treasure We emptied them gonna chuck away. <laughs> Why? Because you know what? kiss which were fashionable in my mama's day were less fashionable in mine, but it was F Porcy, so we took it. Asked my sister, not interested. Asked my daughter, not interested. Who wants a kiss that looks like a coffin for a dwarf? Dominating their sitting room. If you if you're that person see me afterwards, I have got one going cheap. Um, but but we muscling up to the fact that in this stage, we better, we started getting rid of the books, the kiss is going, we're going to be discovered in London, our daughter there, word huggy, H-Y-G-G or something. It's one of these Nordic words about creating ambience, comfort, and Japanese zen, So creating spaces of joy. So where the kist and the desk, which no one sits at, because we've got other desks, plus a cupboard full of stuff. And we put in a cupboard because we didn't want to see it. And we haven't opened that cupboard. Now, I discovered ADSL modems. I discovered wires for TV sets we don't have. We had a whole lot of treasure. Cupboards going, kiss going, desks going. And we're going to put two little hoodie chairs and have a little snuggle corner. Sue's actually looking for an oversized armchair where we can uh, sit in the same chair. Oh, yes! Okay. So, So these things. List your assets. List the kiss. List what's important. List what you would like your kids to have that is yours before they have to make the thing. When my mom died, my mom didn't do that. And by... My folks are divorced, and I think my sister had a bit of ana from that process. She's quite a memorable age, so she wanted to hang on to everything that was the old girl's. So, going to the dead mom's flat, and we, the sole heirs of the thing, so being the gracious gentleman I am, I said, You go first. So, my single sister chose the La Cruz pot that you can roast a wild boar in. These pots, yeah, you could. Bath of twins in it quite easily. And my immediate thing, because this is what brothers and sisters do, I chose the broken egg timer. And so we divided my older stuff. So my sister, 22 years later, has a garage full of stuff that she never used or touches, but very precious. And we have a lot of egg timers. But be that, be that as it may, it was quite a reflection, quite a painful thing for us. And one particular painting, and this is just me, was a F. Porsi from a grandfather came out from Ireland. Um, we saw in the Irish National Gallery a painting by the same guy that I think was about 250,000 euro was the asking price. One in the family. Lives in my sister's house. Um, because it was unspecified. And that's what she chose first. So I chose a cut-out picture from a Heskenhurt magazine that my mother had stuck on a piece of cardboard behind a toilet door. and um, I don't know if that's what she wanted, but that's the way we played the game. So list assets and yeah, muscle up to your responsibility while you can of disposing assets in a way that's not going to cause trouble when you're gone. When you're not there to mediate, when you're not there to explain the rationale behind it. Quite important. Um accounts and agreements, TV licenses. Um, where to find things, multimedia accounts, what your passwords are, laptop passwords, login details, Um, such a useful document. I've filled one in, I've got it, it's in my filing cabinet. Sue knows where to find it, if I'm not there to tell her to find it. If you want a document and don't have something similar, please give Kerry a buzz, it's a useful one. The other organisation that I want to reference, if you're not aware of it, is something called SARP. South African Association of Retired People and Pensioners. It's Cape Town based but it has a national footprint. It's a bunch of older people who want to make retirement fun. And um, Paul Rosenberg, who directs it, has written "Grinding to a Halt or Gliding into the Future." Quite a—it's about a 40-page booklet on the subject of retirement. Quite technical, so it's not generally—he's trying to give you answers, not ask you questions. But quite a good book and something to wade through. But that whole soft Process. All you have to do to join is have an ID number that says you're over 60. There are no charges. They fund themselves through um, acting as a middleman for a closed group short term insurance scheme where they get commissioned. But they do things like they have bought up over the years timeshare right around the country. And through SOP, you could go to well, one of the things is what's it, fancy opening pets, Beacon Bay, Beacon Isle, Beacon Isle, Beacon Isle, Beacon Isle Hotel. You can, through and um, put your hand up to go and stay there for 1,200 grand for a week. Beacon Isle Hotel in which is a levy on the timeshare of the unit they own. And they've got those all around the country, game parks, bourbon everywhere. So there are benefits. There are benefits of short-term insurance reductions. Suddenly, when you're a pensioner, your risk profile changes because there's an assumption that you're staying at home guarding your possessions not drawing in East London for the weekend, so, so, you're in a different risk profile. My domestic sort of household policy dropped by about a
2: thousand
0: rand for the house and cars and stuff when I went over to the SARP thing. So, SARP, if you don't know about it, um, is a good thing. Kerry also has that booklet on her machine and will send it to you with the greatest of pleasure. So, some of the ugly truths about our um, desired future is... Those two documents would be helpful. A thing I can't help you with, but I hope you have, is a will. Wills are such important things because it prevents your demise, which is inevitable, causing unintended chaos. So speak to a competent person. Don't go and buy one of these walking stations do-it-yourself wills. Speak to a sensible person. Because death has tax implications, it has all sorts of things for next of kin, and you want to ensure by working with the profession that you have a document that brings hope, light, and legacy to those that you leave behind, not something that fractures relationships. That's the last thing you want. So, will is a very important thing. Tax and financial planning is so important as well. I'm not an expert on that. Martin who gave me the document in case of emergency is and I fundamentally trust him with everything that I've got he knows my story back to front, here's the guy put put in touch with Linda, who does both our tax that's not my strength there are people there and it's this whole thing over here about professionals who are good at that they aren't a free service, they also have kids to feed and they also buy through to pick and pay But it's money well spent employing a professional if that isn't your level of expertise. It is complicated, it changes year on year. with tax tables and things like that and if you assume that liability, you assume the consequences of bad choices. For me, I couldn't do it. So I willingly pay these people to look after me in a way that I'm unable to make the sort of decisions and choices they do and thus far, about 12 years into the process for me, they haven't dropped the ball yet. They're professionals, they're good, and they do their job. So, tax, financial planning, important. A big one for us, our oh, big disappointment, the only really big one I have, is that in Cape Town they're not dying fast enough. It's an absolute disaster. We put our name down for a retirement village, and all these old codgers are hanging in there having fun. It's really... But... It's never too soon to put your name into scaling down your time um, accommodation. In the Paul Rosenberg booklet there's lots of detail explained about their, their life right off. All sorts of different options. But it's a decision that you have to make now when you don't have to do anything. It enables you to be what you want to be and it's too late to do anything about it. So if it's 70 you want to scale down and go into a place where there's um, frail care. And so you step down to 17. As a 70-year-old, if you put up your hand and say, choose me, uh-uh, you won't be on the team. We, when I turned 60, put my hand down at Piner Village. That was our choice one. And they said, we've got a potential landing date at 75. Me. And Sutsu down to ground because she's a spring chicken and the thought of going any earlier would have been frightening. But 75, you've got an eight-year window based on current mortality rates, good health and stuff like that. So 15 years from saying, I want to muscle up the fact that one day I'm going to need a retirement accommodation to actually accessing it. If you leave it too late, you will find a place that you pay a premium for it. So do that homework right now in order to make sure that your desired future is actually one that you can live into. The whole thing about medical aid options, in touched on that sort of thing, my real advice is that if you have the privilege of medical aid, in terms of discretionary income spend, that should be the top thing. Rather go big than put yourself at the mercy of public health in South Africa. With the Rato, because she's on antiretrovirals, we have to use the public health system. She's part of that. And I think last year, I think I stopped counting at 60 man hours of my time spent in public health facilities to do what a GP or a paid professional could have done in probably half an hour. It's scary, I year. And if you can, if you have the luxury of avoiding public health system, seriously encourage you to prioritize some form of medical cover, medical aid, medical insurance, pop-up cover, because... The one thing that we do know, and we've seen it in a lot of the, um, the Carte Blanche thing featuring Dave Kettles a couple of weeks ago, but the article I read the other day about cancer provision treatment in South Africa, where Treatment Action Group, which used to be, the, well, they were the guys who fought for antiretrovirals, they're now fighting to reduce the landed cost of cancer growth. Because at the moment, cancer, which is an increasing phenomenon, not because they are more toxins, because we're living older Sue's granny died at 60 we have no idea what she died of it may have been cancer but when she died they didn't have early detection so they think she had a heart attack they think something else but certainly the the reality of medical health and the cost thereof is something that we don't have to really take into consideration moving into that desired future Um, you can be very clever like us Emily's married to Steve who's a doctor Yes, so so we milk the sunny more connection for a lot of our stuff, but that isn't enough when you need specialist pulmonologists or you need buyers who can talk. We have a number of friends at the moment. For men going into the retirement age, it would appear that the risk of prostate cancer and the need for early detection, just as um, Sue last week went for the old pap smear business, which... Um, I do the male equivalent and go along to the GP once a year. I've got it diorised, and I meet the knobbly finger. I chew my GP and the thinness of his fingers. It's terrible, but but at my age, the necessity of a prostrate check isn't a luxury. It's life-saving. The best way for early detection of the most common form of cancer amongst men in my age. So that medical thing, think about it. Bustle up to it if you want. Your desired future, this is something you're going to have to pay attention to. Um, we are incredibly privileged having... Oh, well, Hannah is on a, just on a plane now. She's playing for Fat Angels, coming back from snowboarding, which is what yuppies do. Um, but all our daughters live in South Africa. Hannah and Donna have just come back from three years in the UK. They've got a flat in Greenpoint, Jenny, Kate, and Kurt, and Emily and Steve, and Howes and in Pimeland's. Our family are in our, not locus of control, but in our locus of love. So we have walkers, massive Sunday lunches, bankrupt pensioner, and feed the kids. We love it. We wouldn't want anything else. Our best friend has two kids. Craig teaches in a high school in Sydney, and Deborah is a physiotherapist in Sydney. And as a pastor on a not-too-wonderful salary, their biggest challenge in life, is saving enough to make a trip to Cape Town to Oz every second year to see grandchildren children that they only see through WhatsApp messaging and the odd screen. That's a reality for more of our friends than is our experience. Um, muscle up to your desired future. If you have kids who become part of the diaspora, we were chatting last night about... Um, the number of people who are leaving and the statistics are quite frightening. I think one of the realities for those of us who have young adult children, the reality for me with grandchildren now, I struggle living into the best possible future for them. Because as I'm involved in education and schools and stuff, that that, that it seems the common denominator is dropping. There are still pockets of excellence. But if my kids were to break my heart if our grandchildren's parents were to choose to immigrate. But that's the reality we're going to have to look at. And I think all of us are going to have to look at. We're in a global world and kids in all probability at some stage will go. Many of our um, friends' kids have gone. I was at a, a funeral this week where you know, I love this is like a revenge of the nerd. a Couple immigrated to New Zealand for their kids. And at the funeral, I met one of the kids for whom the parents had emigrated. He said, hi, oh, Bradley, where are you living now? And he lives two kilometers from the wheel. He's come home. So his African roots were such that New Zealand never fitted for him. And the very parents who had done this big thing have our problem in reverse. Their kids have left the promised land that they sought and have come home to the unique brilliance of living in South Africa. I've been able to walk around, for, 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 go down to a beach, have a jog. Ah! i Anna and John have just been, they've been sending us pictures of their snowboarding things. They never really lived in snow or anything like that. I can't believe in one week, one picture of them sitting in the sun at 3,000 meters on ski slope somewhere on the back of the Austrian Alps, eating pizza in the sun. Same picture a week later, snow like two feet deep on the same table where the pizza was. They tugged up extremities. So, one of our worries with Hannah is when they come back, know what they will. Not because we're telling them to, but because we love South Africa. They love surfing, they want to get into their wetsuits, get on their surfboards. They love the adrenaline of crossing dark roads, and I'm wondering if you can make it to the other side. <laughs> you know, all, all those things. So, so, this whole thing of the sport travel costs of our kids, reframe, think through, discuss with kids, work out what the plan will be, how are you going to do this? And my last one about this is our future. We've just done it. We've been happy Tucson drivers, big people, newer, lots of kids, robust car. We've gone into a super car for retirement home. A little has So we went to the sort of CX-3 because it's got a bit of a chunky look, but we've literally made it the choice. Probably the last new car we'll buy leveraged through financial advice a couple of points earlier, the tax-free portion of the savings and annuity. We're able, with Martin's help, to realize that asset, put the tax-free portion into the car, and probably the last new car we'll buy. I think the next one will be sooner a little ATOS, buzzing around the retirement village. Um, That sort of stuff, work it out, computers, Um, probably iPads. big question is, you go iPad mini or iPad max? That's where I'm at. I'm going to a conference in America at the end of the year, and I'm thinking I'm going to go iPad max, get the bigger one because the eyes aren't that good. Think through these things and start collecting essentials, putting essential plans into place. All the inevitable, because it's what you do now, and you don't have to do anything. It enables you what you want to be, and it's too late to do anything about it. That's the, the key in successful transition into retirement. So that's the doom and gloom story, the sort of hard work that things are going to happen. There are also some really exciting truths, and Sue's touched on them as she's spoken about that transition from the raft into the new wineskin. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of those really exciting things that you can look forward to in this next day.
1: Yeah, I think um, really just doing fun things. Um, and one of the things, we we like going up Table Mountain. And we discover that you can get a cheaper pass when you're older to go up Table Mountain. Kirstenbosch is an amazing place just to go and sit and just be um, I think friendships. I think friendships change also through the years. And I think you select the people that
0: actually are life-giving for you. You don't
1: have to spend time with the people you don't have to spend time with. And you can choose to spend time with the people who are life-giving for you.
0: And if I touch on a simple exercise for you, I want you to all close your eyes. And this is dangerous because we may lose some of you altogether. But close your eyes, and I want you to think of any living person that you know. Any person. Just draw to mind that person. Um, think of them, picture them. Now relative to that person that you're thinking about, does time spent with that person leave you feeling drained or does time spent with them leave you feeling emotionally kept up? Now you don't have to answer the question and name the person, but if you open your eyes now, we've got you with that one. Was anyone not able to identify the person they thought of as a drainer or an energizer? Because the reality is we are all either drainers or energizers. The four daughters that we love equally, I personally for a long time have been more drained by one of them than another one. Nothing about love. Love them all. They're brilliant. But somehow my stuff is that time spent with one would drain me more than time spent with the other. My oh, rubbish that I've got to deal with. It. But as we go into this phase, please be selective about who you choose to go into the journey with. And you want to and it's balance of probabilities. It's card kind of cookie land and you're smoking your socks if you're all happy people and laughing hysterically its balance of probabilities If 51% of the people that you journey through life with, energize you, laugh with you, and love with you. That's good enough. You can cope with 49% who drain from you. So don't go for cloud cuckoo land. Go for reality, but make sure the balance is that you, you journey with people that you laugh, People of similar interests. People who, when you get together, don't just tell you about their latest operation of pain, would actually ask you about yours, you know, who interested in your life, who prepared to journey with you. What?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think the thing around that is boundaries, actually, you know, that you are going to have those people that you do need to be there for, and actually you want that. Well, that's my job. So I do actually not mind that. But the big thing about that is the boundary around it. You yeah, know, I can give them this amount, much of time, and then that's it. Um, and that's difficult, because it's only when they go across the boundaries that it wears us out. But if we're feeling we're giving them the gift of our time for that half an hour or that hour, and it's all about them, it's fine. But I think the reciprocity of relationships is important. To always be crossing the bridge to that side, and then then say, can I tell you about myself? Now, I think my default has always been, cross the bridge, see how you're doing, and say nothing about myself. And part of my thing has been, and I'm going to tell you about myself now. And actually, some of us, the listeners, tend to not, and then we get crossed that they didn't ask us. And we need to also do this. Um, and boundaries as well around family. Now, we love having our family for Sunday lunch and love having them there. But one of our daughters just stays really, really long, and she stays, and then the kids start having tantrums and stuff. So also there's a boundary around that, which I think is really important, is for our well-being and for theirs, It's actually to also be able to contain that as much as we want to give to other people, our kids, families and stuff. I think boundaries are important for
0: our well-being. then the other thing that you can really look forward to in this desired future, and Sue's touched on it with us in Cape Town, Kirstenbosch, and Table Mountain, is there's compassion for old toppings in the system. I don't know about East London, but in Cape Town, I only ever buy hardware stuff on a Wednesday at Builders' Warehouse. This is like an ad break, because you get a 10% discount. At my local spa, one of my really, those moments in life when you feel you've arrived, at our local spa, they give pensioners 5% discount. And they no longer ask me for my car. Yes! They just look at me and they know I'm old and decrepit. But but I do a lot of stuff. I leverage those things. So it's Builders Warehouse. It's the local spa for us. It's Kirstenbosch. Kirstenbosch on a Tuesday. We haven't done this yet. But I think it's common to all National Botanical Gardens. On Tuesdays, pensioners go for free. And um, it's probably the most dangerous part in Cape Town, place in Cape Town on Tuesday, because you can get nailed by people in Zimmer frames and with walkers and things. It can be quite tense. So we haven't done that yet. A number of restaurants that offer pensioner specials soft food in the flat coke. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not. It's liquor stuff. You can go along there and you get a very good pensioner deal. Um, little things that you can discover that we've discovered that have been so much fun in Cape Town sounds like ad bureau for Cape Town but there's a book for major cities in South Africa they'll probably be at East London in about 40 years time no. <laughs> um, but the, the entertainer is a book that gives you two for one offers in Cape Town and we've for a couple of years now bought this book every year and two from, we have dates in place that we never normally go to because it's actually good value for money, and you can eat likely. Um On Thursday night, we went to Bootleggers hit Bootleggers coffee chain, that East London, right? Okay, they they're on the expansion. They're big in Cape Town at the moment. They've got a burger special, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant burgers, half price every night of the week. So we get a cheap throw, scoring a half price burger. Yeah, so so. In this phase, there are lots of ways to stretch the ram and to get you out of your comfort zone and help you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. Um, Cape Town, when Metro Rail runs, on Tuesday, pensioners travel for free. I've got a friend who, when the trains are going, every Tuesday will take a train from Mowbray to Nusenberg or to Fishwick, walk on the beach and come back. That's part of his de-stressing, relaxing. So look for those things and claim your space unashamedly. Um, with Hannah living in London, we've done quite a bit of traveling over the last few years. And that's an incredible part of life. So when you join SOP, they give you a card that says officially old or something like that. It so it's card. And around London, every gallery I discovered, it's cool being old. You can see what everyone else sees paying twice as much as you see for half the it. So we did more galleries, we did more things, we actually lived into the joy of society recognising that in the seniors there is value, there is worth and it's quite cool having them around. So in this space there's lots of fun stuff you can do. But you know what? And this is confession, you shall grow up, it's inevitable.